If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're only going to do one verse out of 1 Peter chapter 3. I am not a great outliner, I admit that. Obviously, I'm not a great titler. The title of the message is To the Husbands. It's not super deep. The entire outline for the message will be just the words of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, but the truths that are communicated are timeless, and I have no doubt they are revolutionary if we will apply them. We began this study a couple of weeks ago laying what I called forever foundation, some eternal scriptural principles that are unchanging. Understanding those eternal principles shed light, amplify all that we are studying now as a mandate in the New Testament. In fact, in the beginning, that's a great Bible phrase, at the start, before sin came into the world, God created the world as he wanted it. He designed the world according to his perfect plan, even marriage. And one of our forever foundations was laid when we read in Genesis chapter 2 these verses. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, now here comes the ordaining of the marital institution. Shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Acknowledging the forever foundation that God is the designer of marriage authorizes God to tell us how to live out our marriage. If we grasp the eternal principle that God is the designer, then it authorizes Him and it humbles us to listen to His specific design implementations for the marital union. We have to return to the moorings of Scripture. We have to get things back to the way that God designed it to be. Perfectly. The Apostle Paul summarizes what I have communicated within this study. I really think that once establishing those eternal principles, marriage, as Scripture teaches it, boils down to two words. Submission, which is an incendiary topic that we tackled last week, and love. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives." I'm not the originator of that summation. The Apostle Paul in his classic passage on marriage in Ephesians 5 does the summary for us in verse 33. He says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Husband, love your wife. Wife, reverence, synonymous there with submission to the husband. Headship and submission as God designed it to be. 
This message cuts against the grain of our culture and there will be principles that are communicated that really work against the model that our world, this cosmos, this system is putting in place. But we have to return to what God wanted. Again, if I back up a few verses from what the Apostle Paul just said, he says explicitly to husbands this, so ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. You can't escape it. The ultimate command when he's telling husbands to love their wives is not merely love her like you do your own body, but effectively love her like Jesus Christ loved the church. He says so in verse 25, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Three times in the classic passage on marriage, the Holy Spirit says, Husbands, love your wives. That is an inescapable, inarguable mandate. The standard of that love is love just like Jesus loved. And the greatest example of the love of Jesus is that he died for us. Greater love hath no man than this very thing, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. This is the standard of love. If you are questioning what your love for your wife must look like or aspire to, it is love her like Jesus loved, completely sacrificially. Jesus literally died for the church. So according to the Bible, true marital love for your wife is tantamount to dying. And I know what you're thinking. It is absolutely killing me to love this woman. So I'm biblical, right? I mean, my marriage feels a lot like death. So are we doing it properly? That's not at all what is communicated. It is tantamount to dying to self. It is to truly love your wife, to eradicate from your existence self-preservation, selfish ambition, self-promotion, self-will, a self-absorbed, self-indulgent lifestyle. That is the mandate that is given to the husband. It might seem strange when we come to our text the scaffolding that we're building this message around in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. The word love is not used in it. And that might seem strange, but what I know to be true about 1 Peter 3, 7 is this. The mandate is husbands love your wife. Love her like you do your own body. Love her like Jesus loved the church. Eradicate yourself from this equation. It is tantamount to dying to self. Love her like that. And Peter comes along and he fleshes out. He gives us the practical implementation of what scriptural love is. And we desperately need that. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, 7. That verse is here. Likewise. Likewise. Just like Jesus, that's what he's telling us. At the end of 1 Peter 2, he's talking about the submission and love of Jesus. So he begins this third chapter by speaking to the wives with the word likewise, just like Jesus. And he returns to the word likewise, just like Jesus in verse 7. Ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wives, which is in verse 1, according to knowledge. 
giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Whether you know it or not, you are engaged in an invisible warfare. The lust of your flesh, your old nature, is warring against the spirit inside of you. In fact, oftentimes, as the Apostle Paul lets us know in the book of Romans, we know what is right, and yet we fail to carry it out because our flesh is so strong. And here we're being equipped with the reality. Here we are being given the primer on how to scripturally love, to carry it out. And the battle that we are engaged in is what was once natural in the garden, now must be carried out in a supernatural way. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit, the primary fruit of the Spirit is love. What we are being asked to carry out as scriptural husbands must be enabled by the Holy Spirit. We can't do it of our own will and strength. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to love like this because our nature is against it. When sin entered into the garden, there was curses, plural, attached to that sin. Now, we know there is the curse, singular, of sin, and it pervades every aspect of our lives. It's one of our forever foundations. Marriage is the union of two sinners. Marriage is, in effect, cursed because sin is infused into marriage. Every day, in some way, our marriage is touched by this sin-filled world, and we're in it. In fact, if you listen in, as God articulates the curse of sin upon the woman, you'll note something specific and interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, post-sin, God is articulating the curse of sin, and here's what he says, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception." In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Now that requires a study unto itself, but let's focus on this next phrase. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he, thy husband, shall rule over thee. Now let's be careful with that. This is not introducing headship or leadership into marriage. This is the communication of the battle we are now engaged in. This is God saying what once came natural has now been perverted. What once came easy will now be a fight. And he says, as part of the curse of sin, your marriage is touched. Your marriage is invaded by sin. Where the woman would at one time naturally submit and revere to her husband, now because of sin, she will at times try to form, try to manipulate, try to coerce her way into leadership. In fact, when he writes in there, thy desire shall be to thy husband, you could understand that word is crave. Your craving will be to be over your husband, to usurp your husband, and he will rule over thee. 
What that implies is when once, prior to sin, loving leadership was the natural outflow of a man, he will now seek to, by sheer force, subjugate. He will now lead without love. It will be a tyrannical rule, a suppression, a pressing down. Because of sin, what once came naturally has been perverted, directly affecting the marriage. And so the engaged battle is for women to scripturally submit and for husbands to scripturally love. If we are ever going to fix what ails our world in marriage, it begins by hearing what God has to say. All right, we've got forever principles. Now you've told me to love my wife. Does that mean flowers and dinner out? I don't know. Does she like flowers and dinner out? If she likes flowers and dinner out, we'll probably eventually get there. But this message is going to go a little deeper than that. I get invited to do marriage conferences or family conferences, and they'll say things like, you've got seven sessions. And I think to myself, well, I've got like three messages. I think I can stretch it to four. It's pretty simple. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey, fathers provoke not your children to wrath. We've covered it all. You've given me three more sessions. That's where flowers and chocolate and dinners out comes in. You just start making stuff up at that point. So I'm not going to stand in front of you and say that this is, this is earth shattering. This is brand new information. In fact, it's not really even outlined well. All I'm going to do is take 1 Peter 3, 7. I'm going to tell you the phrases and show you how that equals biblical love. And the first thing that he says in verse 7 is, Ye husbands, dwell with your wives. Dwell with your wife. Now that's a deep point, isn't it? So go home together. Have the same shipping and billing address. Is that what we're talking about? If only it were that easy. Of course you're supposed to live with your wife. But he intends a lot more than that. This is literally make a home with your wife. There is actual depth to the word that is used, dwell. It communicates intimacy. And may I say at this point, be careful because providing a good life is no substitute for scripturally dwelling with your wife. You need to be at home. Again, I don't mean in the same house. You need to be at home with your wife. I could say it to you this way. Proximity in the marital relationship is the responsibility of the husband. Nearness in the marital relationship is the responsibility of the husband. This word is found only here in this form in the New Testament. One Greek scholar said this, this may be our English expression, make a home for. As we would say it, it's the difference between merely going to a house and having a home. Live with, dwell with, commune with your wife. As I was preparing for this message, I came across this fact which was the result of a survey recently done. It said this, the average husband and wife talk to each other 37 minutes per week. Now, I know there's some guy in here who's like, what? My wife talks to me 37 minutes before I have coffee in the morning. 
And it is statistically verifiable that women do talk more than men. That is not a misogynistic Baptist statement. Statistics would tell us facts. Women use more words than men. I'm saying that with an edge because I get complained about for talking all the time. It's my job. But 37 minutes a week between the average husband and wife is not dwelling with your wife. That is merely a living arrangement. And what scripture is mandating from us as believers is that we rise to a new level. That the husband grasps proximity and nearness and intimacy in the relationship is his responsibility. It is his job to dwell with his wife, to know every room in her heart, and to be sensitive to her needs. That leads us to the next phrase within the verse. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Those three words, that's a huge assignment. Because what's he communicating? He's saying, know your wife. Know her like, I I know her middle name. I did recently learn that. Should I go home and get her social security number? How do I know my wife according to knowledge? A thorough understanding of how your wife is put together. The word here literally refers to insight and conscious sensitivity. It combines the idea of gathering intelligence through observation, and then carrying out consideration in all of your actions and words based on the intelligence that you have gathered. Know your wife. And this is not something that happens in 37 minutes a week. This requires meaningful conversation and thorough observation with prolonged time periods invested. And then it mandates a change in our behavior because our actions now must be lived out in consideration of the intelligence that we have gathered. What are her deepest concerns? What are her fears? Your wife is unique. And the assignment from Scripture is plain. You must know the answers to the complex questions about your wife. Now, I'm thankful. That when the scripture says over and again that wives are to be submissive, the phrase is there, to your own husbands. And now when we take a step back, Peter is not saying, men, your assignment is to understand women. Because we would view that as an impossibility. But what he is assigning to us is, you don't have to understand women, but you must understand woman, the one that God has gifted to you. You must know your wife, and there is no handbook. It requires the intimacy of marriage and the investment of time. It is stunning to me how people can live together and not really know each other. It's amazing. How many separate lives within a home are being lived out? One wrote this, Ignorance is dangerous in any area of life, but it is especially dangerous in marriage. A Christian husband, he wrote, needs to know his wife's moods, feelings, needs, fears, and hopes. You say, that sounds like perhaps the worst thing you've ever assigned from the Bible. 
I feel like I know her moods, and I feel like I'm not going to go any further than that. In the first service at 945, I said, when I married Christy, I didn't get an owner's manual, and then I flipped out, and I was like, hold on, I just said owner's manual like I owned her when I got her. I'm not saying it's something that we're handed like a handbook. I'm not saying that we're having to figure out how to change moods or adapt feelings because sometimes that is an impossibility. But what Peter is saying is it is your job. It is your assignment to know our moods, to know our feelings, to know our sensitivities, to know our strengths, to know our weaknesses, to know her fears, and accommodate her by your behavior. All the way down to the words that you use, that's fleshing out how to love your wife. She is the weaker vessel. You no longer need to prove how strong you are to her. And let me add, she does not need some kind of smothering, insecure attention from you that satiates your need to show love, but doesn't really fill up her need to receive love. What she needs from you is that factual intimacy that only you can provide within the marriage relationship through prolonged observation and investment of time. Men are quick to let each other off the hook. You can't understand a woman, but Peter's saying you have to. I think it's of note that Peter never tells the woman that she is to know her husband. I might be outside the bounds of Scripture, but I don't think by far to say that women are naturally more intuitive and observant than men are. I think what Peter is doing is in effect clapping his hands in our face and saying, hey, you have a tendency to be selfish, You have a tendency to selfish ambition and self-satisfaction. That's why he says, Paul would tell you, love her like you do your own body. Love her like Jesus loves the church. He's clapping in your face and saying, I know you can get off on your own path and isolate yourself in your own world. Know your wife. Dwell with her according to knowledge and encourage her based on everything that you know. He'll continue on. He says now in verse 7, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Honor her. Matthew Henry, an older commentator, said this. This implies giving due respect to her. Protect her person. Support her credit. Delight in her conversation. Afford her a handsome maintenance. That's old English for make sure she's taken care of. So wives are allowed to say, he said, afford me a handsome maintenance. Now you could even twist that and say, he said you're supposed to be handsome and you are failing. He means take care of her. Place a due trust and confidence in her. Another author wrote with some humor, men, try praising your wife. Even if it frightens her at first, replace abusive words with affirming words. Just try one affirming word a day for starters. Honor her. Even if it scares her to death, use a word of affirmation. Make sure that you communicate it. Ask yourself, how do you treat her? How do you talk to her? How do you talk about her? Paul adds this note to husbands in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. 
When Paul writes, be not bitter against your wife, he's not writing that in because Christian men don't have a problem with bitterness towards their spouse. What he's communicating is all of us have a propensity to harshness in our words and we can be sharp-tongued. And Paul adds to what Peter is saying Honor her as the weaker vessel by saying, be careful of the tone you set and the words that you use. You can do a lot of damage with them. One author writes that Paul's statement refers to a man who has arrived at an embittered state and all he can do is act out with impatience and thoughtlessness. This is why Peter writes As unto the weaker vessel. Grasp. You honor your wife as you are honoring her like the weaker vessel that she is. Now that makes our world bristle. What do you mean weaker vessel? This is not about inferiority in value. In fact, one of our forever foundations is men and women are of equal value. This is generally speaking, which is how we must read this, a communication that men, physically speaking, are stronger than women. I like what one commentator said. He said, with exceptions, men are physically stronger than women. So one of the points of the message is, don't be that exception. Go to the gym, work out, eat like six cheeseburgers today. Don't be that exception. All he's saying is, generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. And inferiority and physical weakness are not the same thing. And the Bible never suggests it. In fact, as we work through this passage, we're going to make note that Peter puts us on the same level as children of God, equally deserving eternal life. May I say it to you this way. Peter is clearly telling men that they are to treat women differently than they treat men. He is clearly stating that the female sex is genetically and anatomically and inherently different than a man by God's perfect design. That is countercultural. But God designed it that way. And if I could say it like this, I would say it plain in counsel. Treat your wife like a woman. Treat her like a girl. This is where chivalrous activity comes back into play. It's okay to get a door. It's okay to carry the heavy item. It's okay to be the protector. Treat her as God designed her to be treated, that she is anatomically and genetically and physically different than you are. Treat her like the woman that she is. Honor her. Like something of extreme value. Let's tie some scriptural principles together. God favors, according to the Old Testament, a man when he gives to him a wife. In fact, he that findeth a wife, the Old Testament says, findeth a good thing. If it is referenced, your wife, as the favor of God and a good thing, then honor your wife comes into play and he says, treat her as such. That's what the Bible communicates. This suppression, subjugation, that people think submission implies is completely dealt a fatal blow when you grasp how a husband is truly supposed to love his wife. He leads in that regard. 
Peter's telling us simply, because they happen to be women, treat them with courtesy and kindness and deference. Be chivalrous. Don't ever harm her, not verbally or otherwise, because you're joint heirs together. That's what he says in verse 7. You're a fellow heir of eternal life, a co-inheritor of a life that in its fullest manifestation will go on in eternity. Truly, you will be together forever. The words Peter uses in here are striking. He says to us in verse 7 that we are joint heirs together of the grace of life. And then he says this, that your prayers be not hindered. That is a serious, serious delivery. What Peter is saying is this. If you do not know your wife, dwell with your wife according to knowledge, and honor her as the weaker vessel with the awareness that you are truly going to be together forever, joint heirs together of the grace of life, then it indicates that your prayers will be hindered. The word hindered in the Greek communicates you're making the road of your prayers impassable. You are offering up prayers, but because of how you treat your wife, your prayers are coming into a roadblock. They're not making it home. So some of the most spiritual people I've ever known in my life who are literally self-righteous, yet they go through life not loving their wives as they scripturally should, thinking that they are truly untouchable, spiritually speaking, have completely impotent and ineffective prayer lives. That's a staggering thing that God says. If you are not treating your wife like you should be treating your wife. You are as an unrighteous individual whose prayers are finding a roadblock on their way to being answered. Let me string together another couple of scriptures for you. Here in 1 Peter 3, as we work our way down through it, let me just read to you what 1 Peter 3.12 says. Now, grasp this because these are tied together as a student of the scripture. Get it. Husband, if you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. Five verses later in verse 12, here's what he writes. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Let's just combine this again. We're just studying the Bible. The ears of the Lord are open unto the righteous, but his face is turned away from those that do evil. Five verses earlier, he has just told us that as husbands, our prayers can be hindered, which indicates if we're not treating our wives right, we better square that up because God views that as evil behavior and he won't hear our prayers. This little despot syndrome, this tyrannical rule, this subjugation and oppression that people think we're communicating is the antithesis of what the Bible teaches. Husbands, love your wives like you do your own selves. Like Jesus loved the church. There's no self in that. It's tantamount to dying. And if you want to flesh out how to love her, know your wife. Dwell with your wife. Treat her in a way that is honorable, understanding she is the weaker vessel so that your spiritual life isn't diminished. I find it very interesting that he touches on the tongue a lot. 
The tongue and the tone of a home are often set by the husband. It's striking, and we won't take the time to work through it, but in the next verse, verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, if we're married to the context, he says, finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Seek peace, ensue it. Here's general Christian principles that are being heaped on and layered on how the husband should treat the wife. In effect, he's saying, act like a Christian should act. One of the greatest things that we can do for the gospel message is to show the world the potency of the gospel in our marital relationships. How tragic it is for the statistics of the world and their marriage to creep into the church. It should be different. People should look at our relationships within the body of Christ and see a difference. It strengthens, it sharpens, it lightens, it heightens the gospel message. Husbands, love your wives. This sounds basic, but when you hear it fleshed out, you grasp like I do, there is a lot of work that must be done. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.